Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. With over 10 years of experience in clinical settings, Paula Falkowski is an advanced specialist eating disorder dietitian and a somatic experiencing therapist. Holding a master's degree in public health, and currently having a certification stroke diploma in autism and mental health. Her expertise lies in delivering high-quality care for both groups and individuals, all ages, for eating disorders. She is also highly experienced in working with individuals with autism spectrum condition and sport nutrition. As an active member of the healthcare community, she is committed to contributing to research, teaching and event speaking, and also provides supervision for dietitians, helping to support the development of the next generation of practitioners. Well, we're very excited to bring Paula Falkowski to our Tooled Up podcast series, and we're very excited to be learning all about something called ARFID in this presentation. So, Paula, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm very good. It's a, it's a big pleasure to be here, so hopefully we have lots to talk about. Well, it's very exciting hearing from someone with such expertise in an area that has become increasingly important, certainly post-COVID. We are very adept at telling our schools that post-COVID, we've seen a big rise nationally in disordered eating behaviours and thoughts and conditions such as ARFID. And most of us have heard of eating disorders, but and people are probably more familiar with things like anorexia, bulimia. But tell us about ARFID, A-R-F-I-D. What is it? And we'll move on to learn a little bit about more granular questions around it. Of course. So ARFID stands for Avoidant and Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. It's uh, the new eating disorder that has been recently added to some diagnostic manuals. And it's an eating disorder that's characterized by food restriction, but different than anorexia and bulimia, where it's mainly driven by board and shape concerns. Arfid individuals will restrict intake either because they lack of interest in eating, so they just don't like eating, and then eating can become a core and it's like, I prefer not eating. So they often lack of appetite as well. So they don't receive proper hunger cues. So eating becomes not anything interesting for them. Another domain, as we say, it's the fear of choking, vomiting or gagging because of the food. So any fear of aversive consequences by eating. And one of the biggest one is based on sensory characteristics of food. So struggling with texture, appearance, temperature, taste, all of them together. So this is kind of, if you wish, kind of the why I'm restricting. But of course, to meet criteria for AFID, we also need to think about how much this restriction is impacting each individual. So we need to consider 
are they faltering growth? So are they not growing as they should be, especially if you're thinking about young children? How's the weight? Is the weight kind of at a healthy range? They can be underweight and they can be overweight as well. So often it's not related to weight, but quite often they're going to be on the lower side of the weight. Do they have any vitamins or mineral deficiencies? So because you're not able to meet that by eating foods. Some of them will be dependent on oral or enteral feeding. So kind of needing some liquid supplement or kind of some oral or nasogastric feed as well. And another aspect is what's the impact on the psychosocial functioning. So are they able to eat outside of home? Are they able to eat at school? Can they tolerate eating in different environments? What's the meal times look like at home? Are they able to see to the family? So all of that together will kind of will be considering when we have a possible ARFID diagnosis. Just as exclusion criteria for ARFID has to do with some medical conditions. So of course, if someone is experiencing, you know, kind of reflux that is stopping them from eating because of the feeling pain, that would be an exclusion criteria. When there's no food available, so any religion or any lack of food or any body shape concerns, as we mentioned about anorexia and bulimia, so they intentionally trying to restrict their food intake, which it's not the case for ARFID. Now, we know body concerns, appearance concerned, appearance anxiety is a very common issue now, particularly with teenage girls, but not exclusively. So who is ARFID affecting disproportionately, if that's the case? So, of course, when we consider that pretty much all teenagers have some difficulties with the body, one of the most important questions is, are they trying to actively change the way they look by reducing the food intake? Okay, which most often the case, especially if they are on the waist, they will say, I don't like the way I look because I'm very thin, or I don't like the way I look because I think if I look that way, I'll be happier. But they're not changing the food intake to get to the way they look, if that helps. But we need somehow to, to acknowledge that being a teenager is really difficult and the physical appearance, it plays a big role when we're trying to socialize and we're trying to engage with peers. So that is always a very important question is what they're actually doing to try to change the way they look. So it's very much linked with motivation. You know, where is the motivation to restrict the food? Yes, because average patients, it's not the motivation is not driven by changes, just their motivations about, oh, it's food is just really difficult. For most of them, if you ask them, they're like, would you not eat? Yes, because food is very difficult or they smell or they taste or I feel like I'm, I'm going, if I eat, I'm going to be very sick and I'm going to vomit. So it is a lot to do with kind of the, the fear of what the food brings rather than being with calories or kind of changing the way they look. And it sounds incredibly distressing to be in that mindset, almost like food is the enemy. You, it's it's so hard for them, painful to even think about consuming it. Yes, and especially because it's very difficult for them to explain why they dislike a food. So quite often parents come like, I don't know why they're not eating. Even, you know, kind of the children or, or teenagers or adults, they say, I don't know, I just don't like eating. Or they can't actually sometimes identify. They just say, I don't like the food. And the parents often say, well, but you never tried the food. And it's like, well, but I know I'm not going to like. So a lot has to do with this kind of sensory sensitivities around food. And then it be appearance and it can be taste it can be smell and often what I explain is if you buy 10 bananas 
they're always going to be different in shape, size, color, texture, taste. <laughs> so it's very unpredictable food. And when we think about all the processed foods, you know what to expect. If you buy kind of a biscuit, you can buy 100 packs and they're always going to be the same. So that's when it becomes a little bit more specific about predictability and I know what to expect. So it's going to be less anxiety provoking for me to have this rather than a food that is constantly changing all the time. And is it a safe assumption to make that some of the characteristics you're describing of that condition seem to go hand in hand with certain neurodiverse conditions? So is that the case or is that a false assumption? No, we do have a huge overlap, especially with autism, but also with ADHD as well. It's increasing quite a lot, especially because of the sensory aspect of the food and, and the sensory difficulties, not only with food related, but with environment and everything else that is happening. So quite often we need to just unpick some of the things and then understanding what is the sensory difficulties led by the autism, but it's not impacting physical health or you know kind of social aspect as much because often what i like to explain is if we think about life as, as a pie chart food is one slice just changing the food is not going to impact the rest but also everything else is going to impact the eating if you had a disagreement with your friend if kind of you did not well in the school or if you're having a very difficult day if you didn't sleep so all of that is going to impact eating. So we need sometimes to try to step back and understand that eating something that's going to be affected by many other things and not necessarily it's always going to be an eating disorder or something. But also you can hear how it's far too simplistic to just tell a child to eat. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. You're describing enormous complexity. And in a sense, it's incredibly difficult both for teachers or parents to know what they're dealing with. They wouldn't be. That's why we're doing this podcast to educate parents as to what could be optimal and helpful in that particular scenario. Let's talk a little bit about if school staff, parents listening to this start to think, uh oh, I'm beginning to see patterns in what you're describing. Tell us about their first steps and how they can respond and support. So I'd say one of the most important things is the communication between kind of specialist school and parents. There's often no communication. So what we see at home, it's not what we see at school. So starting by communicating and then understanding what are the patterns that you see at home and what are the patterns that you see at school, it's one of the most important things. For both parents and staff at school, try not to put pressure on the eating. I know as parents and of course as a staff, we're like we, we want them to eat, it's really important for them, but just putting more pressure is not going to make them eat and it's probably going to make them even more anxious and then therefore not eating. <laughs> so having a reassurance approach of saying, you know, I'm here, I know it looks very difficult for you and if there's anything I can do or if it's any way I can be of help. Also, especially for schools, if possible, providing a quiet environment for them to eat because the dining hall can be too smelly, too noisy, too crowded, too, you know, it's just too much. So eating becomes way too difficult. So having a quiet space, it's often really important. Allowing them to take some preferred foods, and we say preferred or safe foods that are the foods that they tolerate. Quite often, unfortunately, schools do not allow this because they're not considered as healthy foods. And that's one of the things we often tell parents in schools, like there's no such a thing as healthy or unhealthy, good or bad. But we really need to understand this food as food, especially if you're talking about 
someone that's only eating 10 foods, you know, kind of. So that's 10 foods are going to be absolutely needed for them. So a lot of the important things to do is just understanding rather than trying to fix or trying to make a specific change. And always include kind of the children, the teenage, of course, depending on age and how much they can interact, but including them on what they think that would be helpful because quite often decisions are made without them. So, for example, we might, as clinicians and parents, we might think, okay, if they have a quiet place to go, they will be fine. But actually, when you talk to some of them, they say, no, 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 I don't want to stand out. So I prefer not being alone. So you start thinking about what is going to be important for that specific individual and listen to them. It's always something really, really important to do. So in pulling out some of the key things, collaboration between home and school in terms of what we are observing is key. And then we can bring those observations to someone like you, you know, working with young people. And then you've got all the data to look at what's important. Secondly, it is critical that we understand that those foods are a source of survival, those safe foods for that child. We can't be placing that too heavily. And then being careful about what we're saying, but most importantly, validating how they're feeling. I can see that this is difficult for you. I can understand that you think the canteen is a difficult environment. What works for you? How can we support you? So you can hear that kind of therapeutic circle around the young person that could be so beneficial. So from that point, if they are observing, listening to this podcast, identifying there's something we need to think about here, what are their next steps? What would you do if you had a child and you're listening to this podcast and you're recognizing some of the characteristics? What are the next steps, both for schools or parents? So it varies nationally because depending on on the area, there will be offered services and some areas not yet. So unfortunately, we, we can't say that it is for every area that is what you need to be doing. But always the first point is going to the GP. And that is always the first point to, of course, have a proper physical assessment and then for the GP to be able to collect more information and then understand where the referral needs to go to. Because sometimes the eating, of course, is something that is worrying parents in school, but not necessarily will be for the eating disorder team. It might be that they need a dietitian referral or they might need a pediatrician referral. So the GP is going to always be the first point of contact. And then from there, deciding which are the services that they need to refer them. And we know that you have created, which is why we're doing this podcast, fantastic Three support modules on body image, on disordered eating and ORFID for young people, parents and professionals. So let's dwell on those awesome resources for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I didn't create that alone, of course. So it's a joint work with, of course, clinicians. But one of the reasons exactly for young people, professionals and parents to have content that they can assess and kind of understand a little bit more. So we have three different modules, one for fitting difficulties and then half it is included, disordered eating and body image. And the website's called bebodypositive.org.uk. We'll add the notes to this podcast so everybody can jump on it. And then you have modules for the young person, for parents and for clinicians as well, or professionals working with them. And hopefully you'll find lots of very important things. And at the end, there's lots of resources as well in terms of books, websites and places that, especially for parents, where they can get further support. 
Thank you. So we're going to be signposting our whole community, all 23,000 subscribers of Tooled Up to those resources. So let's hope that website's ready for a big um, hit. <laughs> it is. And, and we are constantly updating them because, of course, there's always need. And we are, of course, getting feedbacks from parents, clinicians and young people as well. So it is going to be really important resource that hopefully having more feedback would just be able to continue to do a good work. And in terms, you've mentioned the GP, are there any other tests for ARFID or is it just that initial consultation or can parents take people directly to people in your position in your role? No, I mean, the first point of interest is GP. Of course, some teams, depending again, the area, some teams do accept self-referrals, but again, we would need to screen for that. So there are some screening questionnaires, but it's really important to say that assessment is a multidisciplinary assessment. So it can't be just done by one clinician. So we need to have a proper multidisciplinary team to be able to assess from different points. So some of them will be, of course, dietitians, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, kind of nurses, sometimes OTs family therapist. So that's why when they sit in a multidisciplinary team, we'll be able to properly assess that individual. So it's not only based on questionnaires, but the questionnaires are really part of our assessment as well. Wonderful. Thank you. And I've got some questions that have generally been submitted that I think a lot of listeners would ask, just in general terms. Is that okay? If children lack appetite in general, what strategies are kind of safe for parents to try at home to encourage them to eat more and to get the nutrients that they need? So in terms of lack of appetite, it's really important sometimes to understand what's the lack of appetite. Are they saying, oh, I don't want to eat because they're finding eating difficult? So finding you know, they smell too much or the environment too much or lack of appetite because they don't feel hungry or they feel full really quickly. So this lack of appetite, it's a broad terminology and we really need to understand what it is to think about effective treatment, if you wish. But in general, with the lack of appetite, we need to think about schedule. So having kind of an understanding of what it needs to happen during the day so having a routine works for everyone (laughs) especially for the kids who don't feel hungry probably they will need a lot of prompts from either parents or you know kind of staff understanding okay now it's time to eat really inviting the young person to be part of that and then again with that means okay when what is the difficulty here how we can work together Having preferred food, quite often this lack of appetite is because they're not offered the food that they like or they're being restricted. So, you know, or we can only have this amount of the food that you like or you can only have this after eating this. So we need to understand if we're talking about an eating disorder, the approach is going to be different. And a lot of the things that we would normally do it's almost like don't. <laughs> so letting them go hungry is something that we're going to say, please don't do this. Hiding foods that they dislike into foods that they like. Don't do this because they will notice. Again, having the idea of this is good and then this is bad. So all of this together, working with a lack of appetite, what we really hope is that they, by eating more, 
appetite starts to kick in again, but also be in mind that lack of appetite will be impacted by anxiety. So a lot of the young people that we work with is like, not hungry for breakfast. Yeah, they probably didn't sleep well. It's about time to go to school. Most of them don't like going to school. So they wake up and they want to sleep as much as possible. So I have only 10 minutes. Am I going to wake up 30 minutes before to have breakfast and then go to school? No, I'm just going to school, right? So there's a lot to dig in and kind of get more information when we think what it work better. But definitely routine, it's always a very important thing to consider. And that sort of regularity of consumption. So it's snack time, it's drinking biscuit time, it's lunch time. So sticking to that is a good idea in general. Yes. And if children are eating very limited foods, they will only eat, you know, mashed potato and peas and fish fingers. What strategies can help? I think you talked about food chaining in your resources. What's that about? So when we want to expand the food, we need to keep in mind that we need exposure, right? And by exposure, we mean anything that it food around. So sitting at the table when, you know, parents are eating something different, that's food exposure. You know, looking at the food, smelling a different food, being engaged in the cooking, even if they're not touching the food, they're just like, you know, kind of using cutlery, that's food exposure. Because we need to expose them enough to see that maybe the food is safe or they are allowed to try the food. So we have very different strategies for kind of increasing variety. One of them is food chaining, which means linking one food to the other that are very similar to try to move to a different food. So food chaining could be, for example, starting if they eat potato crisps, it could be kind of changing the brand of the potato crisps and then maybe moving to vegetable crisps, then moving to, you know, kind of probably vegetables in the air fryer or something like this. So it's chaining one thing to the other. But again, we also have kind of messy play for those who are very young and not cognitively ready to do any of the work. With food exposure, we can think about adding spices. It's something that they like, you know, adding ketchup, mayo or curry or salt to foods that they don't like and see what happens in there. So there's a lot of strategies that we can implement, of course, with the young person agreeing to do that. We're not doing anything on their back, so they need to be engaging into this. And if they're not ready to engage, all you can do as, of course, parents and staff is continue to have some exposure in the sense of continue to eat as a family, you know, sitting down as a family. And we know that this is not happening, which is a shame because the young people need role modeling and especially the very young ones. I mean, how they learn how to eat, that's Quite often what parents say, oh, yeah, they went to nursery or they started school and they started eating, but they don't eat at home because there's a lot of peer, right, kind of peer relationship and not peer pressure in the sense that the peers are going to say you have to eat, but actually they look around and it's like, oh, maybe I need to do that as well. So this is the role modeling that we expect. It reminds me, it's not a very sensible parallel, but our cat will only eat when we're eating. I don't know, yes. maybe it's some kind of evolutionary thing where the group is eating, we're all going to eat together. So tell me a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis. So if a parent contacts you, what happens? What does it look like? What is the sort of experience of working with you, Paula? So, of course, in terms of if, if we have a contact, we need to, to make sure that we complete an assessment. And again, it's a multidisciplinary assessment, understanding all the areas that might as I said, include blood tests, if that's something that they 
of course, they're able to do to see if there's any vitamin and mineral deficiency. We're thinking about kind of probably psychiatric as well to kind of think about giving a diagnosis, psychological, occupational therapists, nurses or GPs involved as well for the physical health aspect. Once we assess and, of course, diagnosis is agreed, we then think about what the treatment looks like. I love that parents take some parent support groups because A, they don't feel isolated. B, they can see that all the parents are in very similar situations and then they start kind of noticing, oh, so this is not too bad or maybe this one, mm, I need to address this. So having support from other parents going similar situations is powerful and very, very much needed. And then quite often, depending on, of course, age and kind of how motivated the young person is, we would do kind of some individual work. When I say individuals with family included, because of course, most of them are quite young, but individual in the sense of working more around kind of food exposure, more specific kind of techniques. Or sometimes if the young person is not willing to make any changes, we might do more work with parents for them to be doing that at home. It really depends on the age, of course, and kind of the overall situation. Brilliant. And we've got some parent questions, if you don't mind, about autism in particular. So we've had some parents knowing we were going to interview you and they've, so I'll just run through these. What does the latest research tell us about autism and diet generally? And are people with autism more likely to suffer from nutrient deficiencies? So with autism, the main thing that impacts eating is the sensory difficulty. So the, the, the sensory aspect, that's going to be quite often. I mean, we know that around 80% of autistic people, we will struggle with eating somehow and with some physical symptoms, especially gut symptoms. So bloating or feeling full or not feeling hungry and with sensory characteristics of food, as we mentioned before, appearance, texture, taste temperature so yes if the food is restricted to the point of them not being able to eat foods from all the food groups or in great variety yes they will be more likely to potentially have some vitamin and mineral deficiencies but again not necessarily sometimes we have a young person that eats you know sometimes five foods and then blood tests are all fine so somehow the body is able to <laughs> to compensate and, and it's quite reassurance for parents because of course as parents we're all worried about the vitamins and the minerals but a lot of the food they are fortified so it helps us a lot with kind of yeah maybe they're not eating the vegetables and the fruits in natura but they are taking fruit juice they're taking you know kind of lollipops they're taking foods that actually are fortified with vitamins and minerals so in the end of the day, it's looking at the whole picture, not so much only about what a society we agree that we should be having or should not be having. And also exploring different presentations for the same food. So I always like to give carrot as an example. Oh, they don't like carrots. Okay, but we can try, you know, different cuts for carrots, raw carrots, you know, kind of shredded in cubes, in pieces, cooked for one minute, steamed, cooked for two minutes, mashed, <laughs> frozen, in a soup or smoothie. So the different ways of presenting the same food, that is exactly the work that we do kind of with food exposure is trying to find a way that they tolerate that specific 
nutrient of food. Yeah, it's such a lovely role, isn't it? You're, it's such an imaginative work. It's so exciting. I- it is. And I often tell parents that we need to think outside of the box, you know, kind of, especially with the food combinations. I often say that if you have a closed mind in the sense of, oh, this only goes with this, we lose the possibility of finding ways of eating. And one example that I love giving is kind of avocado. I had very often it's like, oh, avocado is really good. So they should be eating avocado. But sometimes can be kind of eating avocado with honey and salt as one I had once. And parents like, oh, and the person's eating the avocado. So it's be, really being open-minded to the idea that food combinations has to do with our own ability to interact with the food. And sometimes we find brilliant ways of managing to eat different foods, but not as combination <laughs> as people would like. So being creative and having an open mind, it's absolutely needed, but it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant job. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love everything you're saying. Another question, I don't really understand this one. Do issues with interoception impact hunger and thirst signals as my son has a very low appetite? That's from a parent. Yeah, so interoception is considered our eight sensory system. So it's our ability to read our internal body signal. So are we hungry? Are we thirsty? Are we cold? Do we need to go to the toilet? So we all have interoception, but we know from research that autistic individuals and new research now with kind of eating disorders in general, we have low interoception. So our ability to read what's going on is really impacted. So absolutely, with low interoception, it's going to be harder to identify if I'm hungry or am I thirsty or am I full or this is just anxiety or haven't eaten too much because we have the other extreme. It's like parents saying, oh, they don't stop eating. So it, a lot has to do as well with kind of the ability to read how our body is communicating. So Absolutely. There's a huge link into that. Fascinating. And just to say to that parent who's listening, within your resources, Paula, there are strategies linked to interoceptive exposure. Is that correct? Yes. And interoception right now, it's, it's a huge area where kind of it's growing more research and information as well. So there are lots of books and a lot of websites that are addressing this in a more detailed way. But just understanding that we might not have a true kind of information from inside is really powerful because then it helps us to think what's going to be the the strategies to be applied. Brilliant. And we will dig out those resources for that parent. Okay, another question. Do nutrient imbalances impact on certain aspects of autism? Example, aggression or angry behaviors. That's a question from a parent. More than the nutrients, I would say that it could be potentially not meeting calories intake or energy intake. We see a lot of, especially kind of young children coming after school and then being very aggressive and very impatient and very angry behaviors because they're hungry. I think there's an expression, the expression that you probably know, it's being kind of angry, right? It's like it's being very angry when we are hungry, especially if they don't eat anything at school. So a lot of the time it has to do more with kind of energy rather than with specific nutrients. Because again, nutrients are absolutely essential. And yet one of the most the most important goals, especially at the beginning, is making sure they have enough energy. Because you can have amazing nutrients, but if you're not having enough energy, you're still going to struggle a lot with many symptoms and many behaviors and difficulties. So making sure that they're meeting what they need, energy speaking, it's one of our main goals. So 
for those who don't eat anything at school, if they're not compensating that at home, they're not eating enough. And then that absolutely will impact behavior, thoughts, physical sensations and everything else. Okay, another question. Is it really common for children with ASD to demonstrate a high need for sweet things beyond what this parent would consider normal? The same as before, usually kind of having a preference for sweet things and for more carbohydrate things, it probably is linked to not eating enough during the day, needing more energy quickly. So is that a matter that they're not able to proper absorb? But very often it's a matter of not eating enough or spending long hours without eating. So the need for sweets because the body's craving energy and it's the fastest way to have that energy. Also consider again, if you think about interception, we might just go into, okay, are they able to recognize when they're hungry? Because if not, and then they just notice when they're extremely starving, the go-to food will be something that they can have energy quickly and then again, sweets. Also, another important to consider is because sweets is something prohibited or they can't have it. And then when they can, they want to eat everything altogether. So lots of things to consider, but usually it's, it's a classic symptom of not eating enough or not having enough energy especially throughout the day so look at that's one of the things you can help with as a nutritionist you can help with the balance the looking at the whole food sort of intake and and volume and how it's spaced through the day and the relationship between home and school as well yeah if we just sort of finish off looking at i want to mention two things your website is paula kvalkowski dietitian.co.uk so that's p-a-o-l-a-f-a-l-c-o-s-k-i dietitian.co.uk we're going to put that in the notes accompanying this and your fabulous resource website bebodypositive.org.uk so we will put those in our platform and everybody can go to them when they're looking up ARFID, for example. What else are you doing, Paula? Where are you based and who do you work with generally? I know that we have parents listening in other countries, for example. Do you do remote working? Do you support families from afar as well? So I, I work currently as private dietitian and also for, for NHS, for an eating disorder team. And yes, I do work with parents remotely, face-to-face right now, not present, but remotely, yes. And I tend to work as part of a, a multidisciplinary team. So I don't work alone. I often have kind of depending on what the needs are, but a, a GP or a medical doctor, of course, a psychologist, an OT if that's needed. So it really depends on, on the initial assessment and kind of what are the needs or if it's only you no know, kind of no diagnosis, but only dietetic support as well. So really depends. It's really hard to answer this broad question because it is so individualized. And I just want to make sure that the feminine, the young person receives what they actually need. And you can obviously have informal chats with parents to see if you're the right person to help them or they can you can have that initial consultation with them. Yes, quite often. I mean, what I offer is, of course, an assessment and then not necessarily an assessment means that we need to carry on, but an assessment means just, you know, collecting all the information and then seeing what is happening because it might be that it's, it's eating difficulties and not necessarily an eating disorder. So kind of what, which is quite often the case. I know ARFID is out there and we're using the word ARFID as kind of, oh, this is ARFID, but actually ARFID is a serious eating disorder. And if we think about eating difficulties, we, we have the eating difficulties in, in spectrum. 
kind of starting from no mild eating difficulties just to moderate to severe and then off it's actually in the end of the spectrum i do appreciate that sometimes having a diagnosis help parents with kind of important documents at the atps or you know kind of getting more support or supporting at schools and yet we really need to just kind of pay attention that some eating difficulties will remain i i like to explain to parents that of course the eating can be improved but it can't be fixed so it's not that you're going to have a child and then you're going to have treatment and no more eating difficulties will be there. So that's why I often like to start talking to parents about what are the expectations, you know, kind of what they expect as a success, what they would like to see as a change, but also listen from the young person because sometimes it's quite different. You know, the young person's like, I'm happy. And then the parents are, oh, but I want them to eat this, this and this. So there's a lot of inconsistency about what the family or the parents want and the young person. So working together allows us just to think what, of course, it's important for them in general. And then really understanding that the older they get, the more conscious they become about, you know, the eating and more cognitively ready they are to make changes so parents feel like oh my god it's going to just get worse and worse and worse but actually our experience shows that they tend to become more aware and being a teenager you no know, starting going out starting dating and all of that implies that they will have to manage their eating somehow so having some foods that they tolerate but not necessarily they love and then understanding that being at home it's their safe environment so they will be sometimes more restricting the sense of at home but being able to try some foods outside of home and then parents sometimes go, I don't get it. Why they eat this at school, but not at home? Yes, because home, they know it's the safe environment. So it's just understanding where the young person's coming from and what are the difficulties so we can support them on changing. And of course, if they wish, because it, it does require involvement from the young person. It does require a motivation in the sense of changing because Food exposure, it's not something that can be done to them. We need to do with them. So again, a lot of parents we get that are really frustrated because they want something to happen, but the young person is just like, I don't want to. So I often say sometimes it's important to just kind of get the young person right for the time that they feel right to make changes. Otherwise, it feels like the treatment it's not going to work. And it's a shame because when they're really motivated, you can see amazing changes. Well, listen, thank you for all of the work that you do. We're certainly going to be paying great attention to your career and your resources. And we look forward to telling our schools about the support that you offer as well. And we hope this isn't the last time we speak, Paula. I love talking. So anytime you need. (laughs) Well, Tildup is doing a big conference next spring of 2024 on appearance anxiety and girls' mental health. So we're hoping to have you contribute to that wonderful event for an educator. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for participating in this interview today. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooltopeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooltop schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooltop site.